My name is Meg. And my name is Adam. And if you are interested in drunk PhD students, well, boy, do we have the podcast for you. So this week, it is Adam's turn to present. How are you feeling about that? Wasted. Wasted. Okay. So we are going to um, begin by explaining the rules of the game, and then we're going to share a little bit about what we're drinking, and then... Uh, we're going to get right into it. How, how, how does that sound? Sounds like fun. All right, perfect. So, rules of the game. Each week, one person gives the other person one word as their point of departure, as their source of inspiration. And then that person comes back with a 30 to 40 minute presentation for the other person. And then we discuss things... Um, and then, if they're lucky, they get awarded a dissertation from a small American liberal arts college. Okay. Or so, <laughs> Gwyneth Paltrow's institution. Or Gwyneth Paltrow's, if you, if you listened to last week. So, this episode, it is Adam's turn to present. I have given him the word fiber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it cereal? Is it vegetable? Is it the cable? Well, stay tuned. So... Adam, what are you what are you drinking? So tonight I'm actually drinking whiskey, which is a remarkable turn of affairs for me. Oh boy. Um so I'm drinking this Bell's whiskey. Um I think I sent you a photo of it earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh but no, it, it's not really my thing. I'm not a huge fan of whiskey. I quite like an old fashioned, which I think is predominantly yeah, whiskey like an old like man. Juice. Can you not even like attack me right now? Thank you very much. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not hugely enjoying it, but I am sufficiently liquid on it. Good. Okay, well, meanwhile, I have, um, consumed just a number of kind of lower alcohol content, um, beverages. White Claws, Bona, beer, uh, I don't know why, why, why my voice is getting all ASMR, but uh, I'm I'm decently liquored up, and it's through a uh, combination of, you know, uh, pretty 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 impotent alcohol on their own, but together they they provide quite the kick. So that's where we are. Got a bit of a headache. Um, that's from drinking too much. But here we are. Here we go. You went from AMS ASMR to impotent. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sure it's what every person wants to hear while they're trying to check out. <laughs> Okay, so that is what we are drinking. We are both decently liquored up. Um, as per the rules of the game, the other person has no idea what the presentation is going to be about, and it is only when we are boozed up and ready to go that we are going to uh, learn learn the research, learn the methodology, and learn the facts. Adam, are you ready to go? I am ready to All go. All right, take it away. So, as you're already aware, I was given fiber this week and i gave this a lot of thought and there was the obvious low-hanging fruit for me as a computer scientist with fiber optic but i opted for something different i opted for another one of my interests so allow me to present to you my title carbon fiber mclaren and life or death hey 
Yay! Cars! Oh, I'm now has, excited. I'm, I'm excited now. Has Formula One changed the world of road safety? <laughs> oh now, my god. This is an audio-visual presentation. Yeah. So about halfway through, I'm going to show you a video. Okay. <laughs> now, okay. We'll, now we'll provide this video link in the description as well, obviously, for the benefit of our viewers. I'm going to get you to describe what's on the video and what happens sure. in the video. And obviously, I will cut down this podcast to fit. Yeah, sounds good. I'd like to begin by talking about carbon fibre, though. Do you know what carbon fibre is? Have you you've heard what you've heard of carbon fibre? Can you describe carbon fibre? Oh, God. Is it related to like Kevlar? Is it related to like bulletproof vests and stuff like that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll give you wow. that. All That's right. good enough. That's right. pretty much yeah. Oh, okay. Can I? No, no, no. Let me go into it then, because now I'm feeling a little bit okay. more confident. So, is it a bunch of sort of on their own, pretty like um, you know, thin kind of coils and cables and stuff like that? But when they're kind of meshed together and sewn together, they provide this like incredibly, um, like powerfully strong uh, fabric, like this kind of material. So, I'll give you. I'll give you that. I, I would dispute that slightly because actually the interesting thing about fibre in general, I want to talk about fibre in general briefly, um, is fibre exists at many levels, right? You have classic fibres, what we might think of as fibres like cotton, like silks, like you know, you're just general fabric fibres, right? Then you have fibres like petrochemicals, right? petrochemical chains are arguably fibers right because a fiber is ostensibly a long chain of material right you can also have metal fibers right yeah. so metal long chains. so what you've described there the property of of fiber of carbon fiber is not necessarily a property that's unique to carbon fiber in fact generally speaking a well-structured fibre material, regardless of what it's made out of, tends to be the strongest form of that material, right? So whether it's fabric, whether it's, again, you know, petrochemicals, whether it's metals, whether it's carbon, it tends to be the strongest way that that material can be formed. One of my favourite things about this podcast is even though we are on episode six, I think, I am already learning so many new facts in new realms that I think like both of us bring to the table in an inebriated state it's honestly a pleasure to to research and record this truly I just want to gush I just want to get my these feelings out there because I'm having such a good time and I can't wait to listen to your presentation so carbon fiber itself was first developed by Joseph Swan um, as a way to create an incandescent light bulb um, so Joseph Swan was arguably the first commercial producer of the light bulb. Uh, and this is before Thomas Edison, I might emphasize. So he, he would have done this in about 1960. Now, 1960? Uh, sorry, 1860. <laughs> sorry. We are both so drunk. We're trying to, we're trying, it's like the blind leading the blind here. Now, I'd like to be clear here, neither Edison nor Joseph Swan invented the light bulb, right? The light bulb, the concept of the light bulb, the concept of the incandescent bulb that produces light from electrical energy dates back to the late 1700s. So the entire idea has been 60 years in the making. Edison, 
easily had the most successful form of the light bulb purely because he established an entire system into which the light bulb fit. So the electrical grid, the sockets, you know, all of the things that you needed in order to make a light bulb work. So Joseph Swan was probably the guy just before the light bulb who kind of had the right ideas but didn't quite bring it home. Anyway, Joseph Swan was a British inventor. Um and he developed carbon fibre as a way to create incandescent bulbs. So the filament elements of, of bulbs used to be carbon fibre. Now, Thomas Edison did a similar thing using bamboo slivers or cotton threads that he used to bake, and that created carbon fibre. Carbon fibre quickly fell out of fashion in the light bulb. It was replaced by metal filaments, by 1902, uh, Siemens developed that. Siemens, uh, and yes, yeah, Siemens is in the as in the toaster brand. Um, S i e m e n s. Um, and carbon fiber sort of didn't become cool again, cool again, in the material sciences world until the 1960s. Um, in the 1960s, interest started to grow in it again because it was seen as this very lightweight, very strong material that could have the potential to be used in, you know, a lot of industries that really needed that at the time, right? They were really sort of on the on this demand for materials that didn't weigh a lot, but were really, really tough and strong, yeah. right? Can I just ask, were people really inspired by this through like spiders web and stuff like that? Because I've actually seen these videos, right, where if you kind of take individual spider web threads, you know, obviously you can kind of tear them apart. But if you really like weave them together and kind of bunch them up, they have like the capacity to like pull a truck or something like that. It's like incredible. I think by this point in sort of material sciences, there was already quite a strong appreciation for the value of fibrous materials and well-structured fibrous materials. You can look at stuff like, for example, um, sort of reinforced concrete, right? So reinforced concrete is a form of concrete where you run iron rods through the middle of it. And ostensibly on a macro scale, that's the same principle, right? Where the, the steel or the iron rods that you put in the concrete provide the tensile strength and the concrete provides the compression strength, right? So the force that pushes down on it the concrete resists mm -hmm. and any force pulling on it, the iron resists or the steel resists or whatever metal you've threaded through the concrete, right? So fibre was already a very well-known concept as a way of reinforcing and strengthening, you know, materials, right? So a couple of different countries started making progress on carbon fibre with the US sort of making the first strides into this. Sort of for a while, Japan really sort of was conducting a lot of research into carbon fiber, but it was actually the Ministry of Defense in the UK that patented a formal process on developing like high grade carbon fiber. Hmm. Now, the Ministry of Defense in the UK patented it and then immediately licensed it to three major British companies. Okay. I won't talk about the other two because they're not so interesting, they won't be recognizable names, but one of them was Rolls Royce cars no no tanks Ev no, no everyone thinks everyone goes rolls-royce cars right yeah but rolls-royce's biggest market its biggest influence is in aerospace 
Most planes that you fly on have Rolls-Royce engines. That's really interesting. I did not know that at all. So Rolls-Royce is the second biggest manufacturer in the world of aeroplane engines. Behind only, coming back to the Thomas Edison thing, General Electric. G.E. Jack Donaghy's. G.E. Jack (laughs) Donaghy. We've been really, really into 30 Rock these days. So anyway, so Rolls-Royce was one of the, was the most famous Mm. company to get sort of licenses on creating carbon fibre. And they used it to build jet engines and in particular to build the blades for jet engines, right? Now, actually... This didn't go too well. Okay. These engines in particular were particularly susceptible to bird impacts. Oh, God. And, yeah, and actually it eventually led to the nationalisation of Rolls-Royce. Not this incident alone, but a number of different incidences that basically meant that as a private entity it became almost unsustainable. So the British government ended up nationalising it. Now, Rolls-Royce in its modern process... Uh, in its modern form, is actually two companies. There's Rolls-Royce Motorcars, which manufactures yeah. the cars, and then there's Rolls-Royce Holdings, which predominantly does aerospace engines. And they're both private entities again, but they're completely distinct and separate. So the guys that build Rolls-Royce cars are not the same guys that build Rolls-Royce the aeroplane Can engines. I just say, this kind of reminds me, so I've been really listening, really into the um, meditative serial podcast, The Empty Bowl. Um, and it reminds me of how um, Funfetti, which you might know as part of like the Pillsbury brand, right, is not owned by General Mills, who is the owner of Pillsbury, but actually part like a subsidiary of this smaller private just food sourcing company called Hometown Foods. And so like when they are making cereal, like Funfetti cereal, it is for some reason not General Mills, like one of like the four biggest cereal um, bodies that that is responsible for making this, but instead this like weird like back alley small town um, company. Well, you say this, but actually when we get on later, you're going to see yeah. how incestuous, I guess, but <laughs> yeah. for lack of a better term, the entire motorsports industry is. Um what I did want to add as a footnote here, and I think this is really interesting, Rolls-Royce and carbon, this carbon fibre process was both developed about 20 minutes from my hometown in Farnborough. Um, I've been there. Yeah, so you've been to Farnborough, and, and Farnborough is where they developed this carbon fibre process. Rolls-Royce aerospace engines are still based in Farnborough to this day. And actually, all of these companies that I'm going to be talking about are all based within about an hour's radius of where I live. That's really cool. So... Late 60s, early 70s, sort of British manufacturers are on this thing where they're going, there's this really strong new material. It's expensive to make and work with, but it's really strong. You know, it really works, right? Um, But obviously, then emerge these problems with the susceptibility of the Rolls-Royce engines. I don't think it's strictly because the carbon fibre material they chose. I think it was more to do with the design of the engine in general. Eventually, though, the three British companies gave up on making carbon fibre for a variety of reasons, predominantly the fact that Japanese manufacturers were doing a better job of it, um, and also because a lot of these manufacturers had started developing carbon fibre as like a side gig. So it wasn't their primary industry, it was something they kind of did 
on the side. So Rolls-Royce, obviously, with its nationalisation, gave up on its carbon fibre development process. Um, Coulthards, which was another really big one, um, sort of gave up on it. And then there was a third one, which I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, also gave up on this process. That said, there's still more to this story. I'm interested. I'm going to come on now to the to McLaren. So McLaren is a British motor racing team mm-hmm. uh, founded by Bruce McLaren, who is actually a New Zealand, or was rather. Okay. Bruce McLaren was a New Zealand F1 driver sure. who originally raced for Cooper Racing. Like now, Mini if Cooper? Cooper's, if Cooper's going to sound familiar to okay. you, yes, it is Cooper of, of Mini Cooper. So Cooper Racing's younger founder, uh, John Cooper, um, famously helped develop the Mini Cooper, which if you are interested in rally or rally cross, which are a form of motorsport, the Mini Cooper is possibly one of the most iconic classic rally cars. Now, the modern Mini Cooper hasn't had quite as much success in World Rally Championships, but you've got to bear in mind that there was this point in the sort of late 1970s where the World Rally Championship was established, and sort of anything before that wasn't really very formalised, so there's no real status for the Mini Cooper, the original sort of version of it. But the Mini Cooper is iconic, right? I I would say that, you know, just by the fact that you know it, someone who's not particularly familiar with motor vehicles... No, I know nothing about cars. And, and, well... And and next, I know next to nothing about cars and absolutely nothing about racing. But yes, yeah, so the Mini Cooper would go on to change the world, right? And I would argue personally that the Mini Cooper is the most famous British vehicle of all time. I don't think I think I think there's a couple of other vehicles that really sit up there as really recognisable British brands. I think the Range Rover is one of them. I think the Jaguar is one of them. Um, I think the Aston Martin, obviously James Bond, is very recognisable. But I would argue that at a affordability level, at a working class level, at a at a at a interest at the sort of at the general level, the Mini Cooper is the most ubiquitous car. So, McLaren is based in Woking, which is a about 15 minutes from Farnborough, and it's about 40 minutes from me. So Farnborough is where Rolls-Royce is based, Farnborough is where the carbon fibre was being developed, all of these things are going on. Cooper, as a footnote, Cooper Racing is based in Surbiton, which is also about 30, 40 minutes from me. Um, I actually have a question. Do you know why they are all sort of based in the kind of like Hampshire, Surrey like this kind of area. Like, is there a reason for that? Or is it just by coincidence and they just kind of all settled there because they're close to London? I think a lot of it spurred out of the aerospace industry that's based in Hampshire. So there's a lot of aerodromes in Hampshire. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of aerospace industry development in Hampshire. You've got to bear in mind that Hampshire is home to all three of the armed forces, including the RAF. So the RAF was founded in Hampshire. And the reason that the RAF was founded in Hampshire is obviously because of its proximity to the channel. So it made a very suitable flight base for World War II when we were obviously sort of fighting, you know, air raids and stuff like that and conducting air raids of our own. 
And the reason that the automotive industry is intrinsically tied to the aerospace industry is because not only do they share a lot of the properties of each other, right? You want lightweight materials, you want to you want fast materials, you want to be able to create lots of energy, lots of power, right? But also because they had the facilities, right? Planes need a huge amount of space to take off, right? They're perfect for taking cars off of. And if you've ever watched Top Gear, Top Gear is also filmed about 30 minutes from where I live. Um, at an aerodrome, strangely enough. Um, and it's an aerodrome that has a racetrack. Okay. So that's, you know, there's a lot of this sort of intrinsic tying together of the aerospace and automotive industries, but just because there's so much shared technology sure. there, right? Yeah. Anyway, so in 1979, the McLaren F1 team have decided to undertake probably one of the most revolutionary changes to an F1 vehicle design that has ever happened. This this would go on to change the way that F1 is done. So F1 being Formula One. Formula One is obviously the Grand Prix, for those of you that maybe don't associate it. Maybe the Indy 500, if you've heard Indy 500, that's, enough, that's a, more of an American thing. All the same type of cars, right? These really ultra-fast, really specialised, low-running, like, supercars, right? Like, super-fast, like, racing vehicles, right? They didn't know it at the time, though. They didn't know how groundbreaking this change was going to be. And they didn't know how groundbreaking it was going to be because they didn't know what was going to happen after they developed it. So the lead designer on this car was a guy called John Bernard. And John Bernard got the idea for the car after visiting the Rolls-Royce Aerospace Factory in Farnborough. And obviously that makes sense, right? Because this was a very, again, incestuous industry, right? Yeah. Everyone knew each other. You know, you knew people in aerospace, you knew people in automotive, and you were all within like 15 minutes of each other, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's gone to Farnborough, he's gone to the Rolls-Royce Aerospace Factory, he's gone to see this engine being built out of carbon fibre. And he gets this idea that what if we use this really strong, really lightweight material to build the body of an F1 car? Hmm. So this inspires the MP4. Okay. Which is the model of the car. Now, it's an unfortunate name because MP stands for Marlborough Project. Okay. Like the, c- like the cigarettes? A hundred percent like the okay. cigarettes because okay. the cigarettes were the sponsor of sure, McLaren of at the time. Well, uh, there it is. Big tobacco. So there you go. Big tobacco, right. Uh but so they developed this MP this car called the MP4. Now, the MP4 was the first car ever to entirely use carbon fibre for its shell. So when I say the shell, I'm talking about the outer body, right? I'm talking about the actual physical, like, you know what they stick the logos to? and yeah. they stick, That is the shell of the car, right? And it was the first one to entirely be made out of what's known as a monocoque um, shell, right? Which is like a continuously printed single shell. There's no pieces to it. It's just one shell, right? Okay. Um, and it's the first one ever to compete in an F1 Grand Prix. Now, here's where it gets really ironic. And I, I do think this is irony. No British company wanted to manufacture this carbon fibre shell. Okay. Because they thought they thought it was too high risk. Right? High risk how? So they thought that it was too expensive sure. and wasn't really going to prove anything. 
And obviously everyone was interested in aerospace at the time, right? So McLaren's approached an American company called Hercules Aerospace, which is based in Salt Lake City. Utah. Utah. Anyway, so McLaren builds this car. And now I'm going to send you this video link. I'm ready. Okay. Okay, where are you sending it? I'm just going to send it to you. I think I'm going to send it to you on Messenger. Do it. And I will cut this out. Sure. Okay, I just finished this video um, posted by F1 Junkie 08 uh, called John Watson Shunts at Monza 81. Um, and it was very, it was quite graphic. I mean, like, presumably, presumably John Watson. Wait, what, that's his name, right? Now I'm, like, getting nervous. John Watson, yes. Okay, yeah, okay. So he his car, like, spins out of control, right? And he kind of hits one of the, the kind of, the, the, the one of the little, like, uh, the, the big, like, touchdown arcs. <laughs> and then his car explodes. It, like, it blows up into smithereens, right? Like, that's basically what happens. Did the driver get out? I don't know. I, I couldn't see. Was there a guy walking along the right-hand side with a helmet on? Yeah. That's the driver. Okay. This became one of the biggest endorsements for carbon fibre because John Watson got out of that car without a scratch. Yeah, well, I mean, the car so blows much, up. So much without a scratch, right? He helps drag the car off the track so other racers can keep going. I'm not talking he's a little bit shaken up. I'm not talking he's got minor bruises. I'm talking this man walks out of this car that has just exploded at 200 kilometers an hour yeah without a scratch it's pretty that incredible became... it's pretty incredible because that car let me just say like i'm sure you know everyone who's listening to this will be able to access that link to the youtube video the car blows up like the two little back wheels are just kind of rolling around the track like that's the the, the back half of the chassis completely separates yeah no it's crazy you have you have one half of the car the back two wheels on one side of the track and you have the body the cockpit if you will on the other side of the track and this became the endorsement for carbon fiber in f1 car shells and so much so that within three years every single f1 car was built out of carbon fiber Wow. Every single one of them. They all switched to it immediately. Because when his team watched that, they thought he was dead. Yeah. They watched that they watched that video and they thought it was it. That was it. He was gone. Yep. They thought the car had exploded and he was killed. Yep. And that car that carbon fiber shell stopped him from not not just from being severely injured or not you know, it's not one of those compromise injury, injuries. Yeah. It's he actually walked out of that car. He climbed out of it. And to this day, you still watch crashes like that one, right? Yeah. I've wa- I have I watch F1. I love F1. And you watch crash- crashes like that one. And these drivers get out of it. It's they just incredible. Climb out. It's really incredible. And bear in mind, these cars are stripped back. These cars don't have airbags. They don't have... You know, they have seatbelts, right? And they have some sort of very minor things. But they don't have the kind of safety features that a regular car has. They... So the fact that this shell just held his body together is incredible, right? And to this day, Hercules Aerospace keeps John Watson's car in its factory floor, on its like flat factory showroom floor. As a demonstration, they've got a video behind it of that crash. And this is their endorsement of carbon fibre. I mean, what an ad. 
you know, and this is what you've got to bear in mind, John Watson maybe isn't the great, he's definitely not the greatest racer of all time at Grand Prix, but he's definitely one of the most, he's very an iconic racer at Grand Prix. And this became sort of an an endorsement of the use of carbon fibre and a real turning point in F1 safety as well. Just bear in mind, F1 is a deadly sport. It really, I mean, it looks to be the case. Okay, can I just say, so the other day I sent out this like funny video on Twitter basically being like, this is how like F1 drivers train. And the whole video is about 30 seconds long. Like clearly you could tell the athletes were you know, struggling, right, against the kind of, like, forces and stuff like that. But it, it did look and sound both very pornographic. But Adam was explaining to me about how, you know, like, demonstrative <laughs> of strength and ability that video actually conveyed. So, one of the big things that is an endorsement of F1, when I say it's an endorsement, I mean, it's one of the touted benefits of F1. Okay. You bear in mind, if you think about F1, what it really is, is it's a bunch of incredibly wealthy people yeah. firing very expensive vehicles around a track with human ballast in. Yeah. I mean, right? it's like it's like horse racing on crack. It's like next level. You know what I mean? <laughs> so one of the big things that sort of is an endorsement of F1 is much like the space program where everyone goes, well, why did we bother putting a man on the moon? What did it achieve? Is the argument for F1 is that it drives technology forward, and in particular that it drives road safety forward, right? Sure. And this is the real thing I wanted to interrogate. Has F1 truly benefited road safety? Okay, because my question was going to be, right, because like I wrote down the title of your presentation, and I get how, you know, absolutely in these contexts where people are going, you know, very, very fast, right, cargo fast. Um, and also around these like sharp bends and you know like the purpose of it is kind of to like you know like spin your car into like something and have it explode right like more or less like that's gonna happen at some point right and so you know obviously you've got to you've got to meet those dangers with the apt technology right but has have these carbon fiber shells been implemented in like more commercial um kind of contexts no. Okay, so, well, that's... I did not expect that answer. So, carbon fibre is still not a common material used to build cars. Okay. That's not to say that there are no cars that are built out of carbon fibre. There are actually a substantial... There, there are a substantial number of production cars that do use carbon fibre in their shell, but nothing, nothing on the consumer level. And when I say the consumer level, I mean... Your Ford Focuses, I mean your Mini Coopers, yeah, I mean your like your standard your Toyota, your, your Honda Civic, well even your Range Rovers, yeah. right? Even that kind of level, you know, your maybe your higher end production but luxury cars. So the first road legal production car to use an entirely carbon fiber body was the Jaguar XJR15. It's developed in about 1992, 1993. Only 53 of them were ever made. And they were only ever they were made predominantly to support the Grand Prix. Yeah, so, so once again in that kind of context, right? Yeah. So carbon fiber never really made it into real world application. Now, I want to pause here for a second, because you've got to bear in mind, carbon fiber is still a very expensive thing to manufacture. Even even to this day, it's still a very expensive thing to manufacture. 
there's a lot of people that are saying, you know, 10 years, 15 years time, a lot more cars are going to be made out of carbon fibre. And they might be right. I'm not going to dispute that, right? I'm, I'm sure if there's anyone listening, they might find articles that are like, carbon fibre is on the horizon for a bunch of like, you know, sort of affordable level cars, right? But to this day, there's not, there's not a great example of, say, a car below 50,000 US dollars that you could buy that is predominantly made of carbon fibre. Or perhaps there's a different measure, a sedan that you could buy of carbon fibre or a hatchback that you could buy that's made of carbon fibre, right? That said, there are other technologies that F1 hasn't necessarily invented itself, but has definitely provided substantial improvements to that have improved road safety. So F1 is largely credited with the development of the disc brake. Now, disc braking is this idea that the you've got a wheel, you've yeah. got your tyre, and you've got your wheel turning, and inside your wheel you have a disc that is sort of parallel to the wheel and turning, to which you apply a ceramic brake, which essentially clamps onto that disc to stop your wheels turning, right? Disc braking is not an F1 invention. Disc braking predates the motor car okay. as a concept, right? For them horsies. But, yeah, for, for, for horse and car, essentially. But it is something that F1 has definitely helped drive the technology forward on. You know, developing the necessary heat-resistant ceramics and stuff that can essentially grip a disc successfully. So... I don't think it's fair to credit F1 with inventing the disc brake, but I think it is definitely fair to credit them with the development and the improvement of the disc brake to a point that sees them commercially viable, sure. right? F1 has also been accredited with aerodynamic improvements to motor vehicles. And actually, you know what? This, again, can also be largely substantiated, right? F1 cars go really fast right some of these cars are hitting 270 280 kilometers an hour at their like fastest right so strong aerodynamics that keep those cars with a lot of downforce pushing them down into the ground and preventing them from spinning out from losing grip from losing friction is a really substantial improvement that f1 has made and the f1 research has created so you know, there's definitely some evidence here that F1 has had some measurable impact on road safety. One of the most interesting things, and this is a myth that I want to debunk here. Okay. Are you familiar with anti-lock braking? ABS, perhaps. You might recognise the acronym on the dashboard of your car occasionally. Is it when, like, if you're in a like emergency of some kind, your car won't let you like suddenly brake? Sort of, okay. yeah. So when you slam your brakes yeah. down, anti-lock braking essentially releases and reapplies, releases and reapplies your brakes, right? The idea is, is that the physics basically shows that if you release and apply the brakes, you get more friction than if you grip the brakes, right? Because after a certain point, the disc that you're gripping to essentially becomes resistant to the friction that you're applying. So by releasing and re-gripping, you actually reduce your speed a lot faster than simply just gripping. Sure. So, to be clear, don't try this. Don't try this at, at all. 
if you've ever conducted an emergency stop, if you've ever gone sort of 60 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour, you've slammed down your brakes, you'll feel your car does a bit of a judder. It'll go... And that is anti-lock braking kicking in. So anti-lock braking is essentially releasing the brakes, reapplying them, releasing them, reapplying them, releasing them, reapplying them. This is not an F1 technology. This is not an F1 technology. The modern form of the anti-lock brake was developed by Fiat. Which does have an F1 team, I might add. does have an F1 team. It was first sort of really put into production by Chrysler in their Imperial. But what's even more interesting about this myth is not only is ABS not developed by Formula One, it's banned from Formula One cars. Okay. Because anti-lock braking is viewed as a driver aid a digital driver aid which allows them to improve their braking quality and because f1 is a test of driver's ability right mm-hmm. it's viewed as an unfair advantage right like one one aspect of a drive of a driver's skill is their ability to brake at the correct point sure okay no, 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 i get that so oh so this would be like an unfair aid kind of well, it removes them out skill. In that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like removing the challenge itself well, of knowing exactly when and like to what degree, right? And and if you ever ask any F one enthusiast, you go, oh, so what kind of technology has ever been put on like an, that's been translated from an F one car onto like you know traditional motor vehicles? They'll almost certainly jump to a- ABS. They'll almost certainly jump straight to anti lock braking because I did. Yeah. If you if you ever get if, if before this podcast before I did this research if you said to me what what F one technology has been translated to cars that has led to more safety I would have gone straight to anti lock braking because yeah. that's the that's the thing you're always told but no it's not true it's categorically not true there's not e- there's not even substantive evidence to suggest that anti lock braking has ever been a substantial part of an F one car hmm. anyway so. I want to come on to a couple more things. I want to come on to one, one or two more surprising things. I want to come on to F1 has developed a lot of sensors. Now, this is very this is very uncool, I know. But F1 has actually developed a lot of sensors for monitoring the condition of their vehicles, right? They can monitor tyre pressure. They can monitor, you know, various different fluid levels, all of this kind of stuff. And F1 has really driven forward the advancement of sensors. And that doesn't sound like a safety feature, but it really is, right? And a lot of these sensors have been translated to modern motor vehicles. There's a lot of modern motor vehicles that now actually depend on, and this is again interesting, Mm-hmm. McLaren sensors. Hmm. McLaren has three divisions. It has its racing division. It has its motor car division, which is what develops its like road legal cars. And it has what's known as its applied technology divisions. And its applied technology divisions develop sensors for all kinds of use cases, from chemical manufacture to automotive. And where it's really interesting is McLaren is so good at building sensors, so good at building sensors, that most of the other teams use McLaren sensors on their F1 cars. Yeah, well, this is what you were telling me about how, like, a lot of the F1 stuff, it's all just, like, the same cars. Or, like, a a lot of it is, like, mixes and matches of, like, similar... Well, one, one, one team builds the best thing, right? Yeah. Like, Mercedes probably has the best engine at the moment. 
Probably. I don't I don't want to get into that fight at the moment. I think it's too early in the season to say who's actually got the true best engine. But definitely last season, like Mercedes were building the best engine. And that's why Aston Martin are using the same engine as Mercedes, right? But yeah, so there's a lot of shared technology here. I don't think that's so much because they're they're trying to make them the same car, but ultimately one team tends to excel at one thing, right? And very few teams have the necessary expertise to excel at that same thing at the same time. It's very expensive to be number two, right? If I develop a really good engine, but it's not as good as the number one engine, I've wasted a lot of money developing that engine. Sure. And now I'm going to come on to perhaps the most shocking thing. This is going to be a shocking thing for you. And given our talk last week... Okay. F1's biggest impact is in improving efficiency of cars. Okay. so Energy efficiency. Ecology, essentially. And it sounds crazy when you think about it. What? These hypercars that burn fuel like this and they fire them around the track... But it's not really crazy because ultimately there's very strict limits on what F1 cars can do and what they can afford to do. If you drive an F1 car around a track, every time you have to bring it in to refuel, you don't just bring it into the pit lane. You have to put it into the garage now to refuel. You actually have to reverse it into the garage to refuel this car. So most, well, no, not most, all F1 teams build their cars such that they can get round on a single tank of fuel. Mm. And this kind of makes sense as well, because you've got to bear in mind, you don't really want to be carrying any more fuel than you need to. The heaviest density thing you're going to have on board your car is probably going to be your human being. Sure. And then the second densest thing is probably going to be your fuel. Yeah. Right? So having fuel on board having more fuel than you need on board a car is undesirable right so f1 teams really do push the limits of their engines in order to improve their efficiency and among other things one of the most interesting things in recent years and if you're familiar with sort of mild hybrid technology which mild hybrid technology is another can of worms that is pseudo suspect but does make sense in the the sense of formula one is this idea that when someone breaks, when someone slows down, or when someone admits exhaust fumes, you should capture the energy from that, right? If you're braking, you're wasting energy, right? That's not to say you shouldn't brake. So if you're driving, please brake. Yeah. But you know, when you brake, what you're essentially saying is I put too much en- I've put too much power into my engine, and I now need to apply another mechanism to reduce that power and waste that energy. So F1 has developed these things called uh, kinetic energy recycling systems, which are essentially energy capture systems on brakes that put that energy back into a battery that can be then used to drive the motors. So it's like an energy recycling system where we go, well, let's not waste any any more brake energy than we need to. Okay. So I'm going to come back finally Mm -hmm. to my verdict on this. I want to come back to the overarching question. Has F1 made road... Has has F1 improved road safety? So everyone wants to think of technology as this simple, flashy thing that one maverick develops in their workshop one night and changes the world, you know. We want to think that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. We all want to think that McLaren invented the carbon fibre shell. And whether that 
individual, whether that maverick is an individual or a team, you know, everyone wants to believe that that one endeavor, you know, whether it's high performance racing, whether it's space exploration, or any other sort of lofty pursuit that we undertake, is the catalyst and the driving force behind a world changing discovery. But they're simply not. They're simply not. Does that make F1 a sport that is merely the playthings of the super wealthy, pitting human ballast against one another in a test of reaction time and money available to fund development? Probably. But has F1 been a proxy and created advancement in technology that have helped to improve motoring for everyone? The answer is probably also yes. I don't think it's fair to expect one pursuit to carry the burden of invention, right? However, I also don't think it's fair to condemn a pursuit as valueless when it fails to live up to that unattainable goal. And thus concludes my talk, Has F1 Made Roads Safer? Well, I think that was just brilliant. And truly, like I said at the beginning, one of my favourite things is about this podcast is giving each other weird and wacky kind of mundane um seemingly inspireless words and challenging one another to look deep into our own skill sets and interests and come out with just like a brilliant presentation and i think you've definitely done that i think you've took the word fiber <laughs> you <laughs> departed fr- you you introduced it with a wonderful hook you presented excellent evidence and a fun like really shocking video right and most of all you've attempted and and more or less succeeded to like answer the question of of your paper right i i have to confess i'm not someone who's particularly into cars i was really dazzled by that video i i think it's really interesting like i'm personally interested in why things are set up like where they are the kind of like geography of things i think that's really interesting um i like the real world kind of connections that you brought to it i like the environmental connections and i think overall you just did a wonderful job and i really enjoyed hearing that presentation i'm so drunk right now i'm so sorry like i think with like the last two presentations the last two episodes the other person is kind of like in and out of it because like we're just kind of nursing our intoxication we're having a good time you know like i don't know listeners if you guys have ever like like, the, just the different kinds of being drunk. Like, sometimes you'll have a kind of state where you're really talkative and chatty and you are all over the place. And then sometimes you're just kind of, like, mellow and having a good time, zooming out, just, you know, loving life, right? And I, I think your presentation really aided my journey into my own inebriation. And for that, Adam, I am, am going to give you... I'm going to reward you your PhD with distinction, um, no... You know, no revisions, no corrections from the uh, University of Nipissing, a small, uh, wonderful college in Ontario, uh, in uh, car parts and mass media and culture. <laughs> Congratulations! <laughs> what what a cross section! Yeah, what Very a cross section! Well, I think that sort of draws our episode to a close. I think there's only one more thing for us yes. to do, and that's for me to give you. Your word for next week. Your topic for next week is... Drum roll. (laughs) 
Georgian. Georgian. I'm very excited for that. Hopefully I can find something very creative, but as someone who specializes in 18th century British literature in my own um, kind of formal academic research, I will, I will... I will be tempted to dive into something like very niche and very related to my own studies, but I'm going to I'm going to try to keep it fun. I'm going to try to keep it I'm going to keep it like easy and breezy as it were. Yes. And you know, this concludes our episode. And you know, before we end things formally, I just want to encourage everyone listening um, to obviously subscribe, to tell your friends all about it. And if you can to check out our um, social media platforms, we have a Twitter account at um, live in Viva. That is our Twitter account where you can find what we are drinking, what uh, when episodes are coming out, and just how we're doing. And you can also check out our Facebook page at Live in La Viva Voce. Um, it would we would really just appreciate um, you tuning into those, subscribing, letting people know how you found our podcast, how what you think of it. Um, we're just trying to have a good time with this. I think you know both of us are in a long distance relationship right now, and this is just one way for us to hang out. But you know, any kind Starting of starting to sound desperate, like, like well, uh, but any kind of positive feedback, you know, would make our day, right? Like, if you have negative feedback. Don't. Yeah, or do, but just to Adam. <laughs> just uh, let me give, let me provide Adam's like personal social media, and you just rag him out on it. Um, but yeah, that concludes our episode. Um, we will tune. Thank in. you for listening. Yes, thank you so much for listening. We'll tune in next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.